Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Olga V. Mack. Olga, Olga, thank you so much for joining us here today. <laughs> Olga, thank you again for joining us. Tell everybody, A, how we know each other. I may have to tell that. I don't know if you remember. And then B, a little bit about yourself. <laughs> you start with hard questions. You test my memory. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I don't remember the specifics of how we met. I met a lot of people. It was likely online. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're absolutely right. And I don't remember specific. I do remember that you have a lot of great posts and fantastic content. And anyone has who has thoughts of wisdom, practical advice, or enthusiasm for technology, data, or life is very likely to be very highly ranked on my list of people I want to get to know. So I believe you exceeded that definition of great people in my life. And I think that's how we met. I'm, I'm going to keep it yes. at that. If you want to correct that story, that sounds good no, to me. I was definitely a fangirl connected with you didn't just follow and you were gracious enough to respond and we met in person the first time at legal week this past year so uh yeah connected via linkedin <laughs> and that's what legal week is for to meet in person exactly i'm glad we had an opportunity to catch up in person the short story about me is that today i'm building the future of law at LexisNexis, the company that acquired my startup called Parley Pro, which is a contract lifecycle management or CLM platform about a year ago. I am a tech lawyer by design. I spent a significant amount of time practicing law, telling people what to do. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. I've been at uh, Big Law, Wilson Sonsini. I've been at the Fortune 500 company Visa Inc. I've been at numerous hot pre-IPO companies. I'm former general counsel, former VP of strategy at a blockchain company, and now the CEO of a legal tech company. So I've done a few things in the future of law and technology. I've been in most technologies before they were cool, including SaaS, AI, ML, data, blockchain, crypto, all kinds of stuff. I love disruptive tech. I, I think it's an opportunity for us to change our world and live it better than we found it. You definitely come to the table with very unique and, and exciting experience. The disruptive tech is really what this podcast is all about. And having had that experience on the, the attorney and legal product side, what do you see as what it really takes to bring a product to market that's focused on a disruptive technology? You know, just like in life, just because somebody went to great schools or is very smart doesn't mean that this person is going to be a successful individual. I have two daughters and people ask me where I would like them to go to school or what I want them to be growing up. Um, 
And really, the only thing I want to do is to release successful adults into the wild. Adults that will know how to be happy, how to meaningfully contribute to the world, and how to have lasting impact. It's on one hand like a small thing, on the other hand it's a big mission. And for that to happen, there are some correlations with various factors, but ultimately none of those factors is outcome determinative. I think of technology in exactly the same way. There's multitude of factors. There's a multitude of participants and stakeholders. Certain things absolutely have to be aligned. You have to solve somebody's problem and they are willing to pay for it. And, and the regulatory landscape has to be conducive to those activities. That's table stakes. And then there's a multitude of other factors that have to happen. It just takes a lot of factors to develop and release successful technology into the wild and for it to have a wildly great impact in the same way as it takes manufacturers to create a human and release the human into the wild to make sure that that human is a positive productive member of society. And I think the comment you made about solving a problem, I feel like maybe because we're very early on with some of these disruptive technologies, the focus seems to be on the technology, the underlying technology itself, and not really the problem they're trying to solve. We talk about blockchain and blockchain. It's all about blockchain, blockchain, blockchain. But like, really, what is the problem? What is the use case for it? You don't really hear about it as much. So do you think that's just part of the general hype cycle of any new technology that we're so focused on the technology and not really on the core product and what problem the product is solving? As technology matures, the use cases become more and more evident. <laughs> when technology is very immature, it is more focused on, look at this cool thing it can do. I don't know what to do with that cool thing, but it is really cool. There may or may not be use for it, but it is really cool. A lot of that drives sort of initial R&D. And that's why that's the stage where a lot of that happens in university. And that's why when it comes to blockchain, even still today, indefinitely up until recently, the most exciting, innovative stuff I actually think was happening in universities, places like Stanford, places like MIT, places as a University of Singapore, places like a University of Waterloo, and numerous other technical universities, places like UC Berkeley. And those are the right settings to look at, look, this thing is cool. <laughs> Let's see what it can do, right? Because universities have the sort of freedom of thinking. It has a regulations of ethics committee. And you don't necessarily have commercial pressures of research. You're doing it because it generally lifts us all up and gives us an opportunity to become better humans. At some point, for technology to be much more spread and have impact, it absolutely has to have a product market fit and solve somebody's problem. And that somebody has to be willing to pay for it. And that's a necessary component 
for technology to go from sort of the R&D, how cool is this stage, to kind of more commercial applications and ultimately wide adoption. If there is a gap between the two, it will just be that, a great research project. <laughs> um, and many technologies, like a lot of technologies you've heard of or haven't heard of, just die in that R&D stage. And there is a value to continue to do that at universities or think tanks because it just makes us better humans, more experienced. We can ask better questions. We can develop better technologies going forward. There's an absolute value in that. And at some point, you need to solve somebody's problem who's willing to pay if you actually want to have a greater impact. What of all the emerging technologies out there right now are you most excited about? Oh, <laughs> so my daughters ask me, which one of them is my favorite child? And I have perfected <laughs> the answer of saying to my all the older daughter that she's my favorite older child and my younger <laughs> daughter that she's my favorite younger child. And I tell my husband that he's my favorite husband. <laughs> and that has been working for me really well for the last 15 years. So I could give you <laughs> the answer that in DLTs, <laughs> uh, blockchain uh, technology is really exciting, specifically the DeFi movement. <laughs> I can tell you that in AI technology, generative AI has been very impressive. You know, but I don't think that's what you asked. Um, the reality is today, the stars seem to be aligning closer to AI technology. And what I mean by that, kind of a few factors that to me suggest that AI is an important technology to pursue today are the fact that it is it has matured. It is definitely now being developed outside of academic uh, places. It solves real problems for which people are willing to pay. And there is sort of an excitement and enthusiasm around it. And among many other factors, regulatory landscape is kind of complicated on the ethics side, privacy, security, copyright side. But those problems we have solved before with respect to internet. So I have a high degree of confidence that those issues are solvable because we've done it before 20 years ago. We, it only took us a lot of time to figure it out, but we've solved the copyright issue. We are, we are working diligently to solve privacy, security issues, it's all of those things. We are addressing those things over time. And to me, AI has sort of parallel issues, and I have high degree of confidence in humanity that we can overcome it. There are other technologies for whatever reasons, either because technology is not developing fast, or because there is, it's a solution, it's a problem looking for a solution, I mean, a solution looking for a problem, or because the regulatory landscape is super complicated and highly uncertain for various reasons. Other disruptive technologies are just not ripe today, but AI is, that AI revolution is going on and we all must pay attention to it. So if we all have to pay attention to it, and I completely agree with you, 
what are some recommendations you could share with the audience to anyone out there listening? How can you get ready to be prepared to be someone in a world where the AI revolution is happening? What do they need to be doing to get ready for it? In any field, there are theoreticians, <laughs> there are practitioners, and there are people who just pretend the world don't exist. <laughs> and I probably should have reordered it. If you look at statistics of AI, it's one of the most highly adopted disruptive technology we've had today. However, there are still pockets, massive pockets of the population that never tried chat GPT, that live under the rock, essentially. I would say whatever your tolerance for risk and enthusiasm and curiosity, you really don't want to be the person who doesn't try chat GPT once. Just saying, hello, how's your day? And what should I have for breakfast? That should be an easy conversation for any human on the planet Earth. So I'm assuming that the listeners to this podcast are not in this category because otherwise they wouldn't listen to your podcast. I'm assuming <laughs> that I have listeners somewhere between folks who are trying things and, and uh, folks who sort of reluctantly waiting. And so my recommendation is to get into pool and not be a theoretician. My dad was a professional swimmer. He used to call people who theorize but never do things, he called them theoretical swimmers. He said, anybody can tell you how to swim theoretically. You just like put one hand after another and you <laughs> and you get from point A to point B, got it? <laughs> but it's a very different feeling when you get into a pool and do butterfly. Uh, that's not for everyone. My dad was very proud of being really good at butterfly swimming. That's how I differentiate people relationship with technology. There are people who will theorize, tell you the plus and minuses and theoretically swim their way through technology. And then there are people who roll up their sleeves and experiment and try and do low stakes tests and experiments and learn. And to me, this early in the game, if you do that, you will be far ahead of the curve. And I think the barrier to entry or the learning curve for AI is so much lower than something like buying an NFT. You're not having to set up a wallet. You're not having to go buy money and transfer it to wallet. That took me like a whole weekend to like work through <laughs> where I was just like, wow, this, I feel like I'm on a journey here. It took way longer than I thought it would to get on ChatGPT and play around. All you do is set up an account, log in and start playing around. And I think the barrier to entry is low. You can go in and play around and maybe you don't like the results, but at least you're playing around with it and trying it and seeing what it's like. If anyone out there hasn't tried it yet, I definitely recommend you, you logging in and just asking for it to write a poem about something or to write an outline for a paper that you might want to write or a bullet point just to just see what it's like. Low stakes experiment. Write mm -hmm. an apology to my husband. <laughs> and see impact on your life. I've done that. And my husband said, wow, you've never talked to me so much. <laughs> that made a big difference in our marriage. Low stakes experiments that have a massive impact. Don't solve a theoretical problem. Whatever problem you have, <laughs> your argument with your spouse. 
And I love the theoretical versus practical. I actually had a conversation with someone about this today about a potential law school course. And for me, it's very important that if, if you're going to be teaching courses about AI, please bring on practitioners who actually, like we know, like we've, I'm the same way as you all got, I like rolling up my sleeves. I want to drive, drive the mouse. And I want to see like where all the pitfalls are. And that's really the voice that needs to be teaching people about things like AI, because we know what the practical limitations are. We know that there's a lot of shiny object syndrome that, that happens sometimes. And there's a reality of sometimes it may not work and this is wise. And I know you're, you're a law school professor. You were kind enough to ask me to be a guest lecturer. What do you think about the importance of teaching just practical AI skills in law school? Practical skills, period. I've been teaching for a long time. I, I love teaching. I think teaching is an important job. It's your opportunity to really influence the world at the right stage. I had an opportunity to teach at Berkeley for actually a long time. I've been teaching at Berkeley in college since, since I was an undergraduate. And during law school, I, I went there for college and law school, continued teaching economics and political science courses throughout law school. When I graduated, I've taught law school. <laughs> I've taught design thinking, leadership, financial statements for lawyers, most recently blockchain law. Not all at once. I'm not that talented. <laughs> I've not taught them all at once. I taught them uh, at different times to different audiences. I've taught, in addition to college students, I've, I've taught uh, JDs or folks who are trying to become lawyers today. LLM students, executive students, folks who are trying to uh, become general counsel, various regulator academies. I, I've taught quite a lot of folks. Uh, and the impact teaching may have on people who are just starting or people who are trying to upskill or people who are trying to enrich their understanding of important current issues is just massive. I can tell you very proudly that it gives me immense joy that I have trained many blockchain regulators worldwide because that is what the executive LLM program at Berkeley Law attracts. And I've been now doing it for five years and I'm immensely proud of that fact. So teaching is very important. I do not consider myself an academic. I've made a very intentional choice not to become an academic. When I was applying for law school, I was simultaneously applying for PhD in economics. I was accepted to a few schools and made a very intentional choice to not become an academic. And at the time I have articulated it as that I love building stuff. I like solving real problems and it's not enough for me to just sort of write. I'm a doer. And I perceive the law to be that discipline where I solve your most painful problems today. To my surprise, law school education is a lot more theoretical and philosophical than I expected, uh, which was a challenge for me as a law student. <laughs> Thank God that the practice of law is more geared for somebody minded like I am, who actually sort of likes to solve problems daily. And that's, I think, is really the only attribute that has been super helpful for me to enjoy the practice of law and be successful at it. And with respect to teaching, when I teach blockchain law, for example, which is really 
it's not a, a, a doctrinal class in the sense that there is no discipline as blockchain law. But what there is is intellectual property, securities, money regulation, corporate tax, all of those things. Um, and very few people know all of them very well. You're lucky to know one very well, too, then you're genius. And my job is to help folks to understand this technology and then spot issues and collect enough facts within the company or as a regulator from the company and then work with specialists to make prudent, informative decisions. Issue spotting and evidence collection, really. So to that end, I do go through the top five legal issues, securities, IP, corporate governance, whatever, uh, money uh, issues. And I always bring special, like I brought in you as a data specialist. And I bring people who really have traced money um, and former um, government agents and know how to do, like I know how to do it. I'm a theoretical swimmer <laughs> when it comes to that. I, If you ask me a question, I may even sound competent. But I'm a theoretical swimmer when it comes to tracing money in the wild, so to speak. Intellectual property, I know really well because I'm an IP lawyer by design. So I, if you're going to talk very, do a deep dive in patents, trademarks, copyright, trade secrets, we can go down pretty deep. Securities, I've become a reluctant expert. I'm not quite <laughs> a beginner. I'm not quite in, you know, at IP level that I am, but I'm pretty deep because at this point, blockchain has had so many securities problems that, that, mm -hmm. and, and opportunities that I know that it should quiet well at this point. So all that to say, I bring a lot of folks who go deep into those issues to supplement Olga's gaps, of which I have multiple because I'm also a normal person. And I do think that that exposure to students to multitude of issues, ability to uh, spot them, understand what they need to collect to deal with them and how to contain them, and then how to engage with a specialist to and, and truly collaborate to problem solve together and go step and step as, as a generalist or a specialist in another area. I think it's a really important skill in 21st century with disruptive technologies. And I think also just acknowledging to your students, I don't know everything and it's okay. Having that skill of knowing your strengths and your weaknesses or like what you know really well and what you don't and when to tap in an expert, that's a really powerful skill. I think as a young attorney, you may feel like, oh my goodness, I, I don't want to look like I don't know what I'm talking about, but sometimes you need to. And it's really important to know when to do that. And the legal profession has... A bit of a reputation for being slow to to adapt to technological changes, but I have a lot of hope that I think that there is change in the air, and I think that there is more interest in our colleagues to see what's there and maybe how we can improve things. What are your thoughts on that, Olga? I think we attract people to law school who are high achievers and have a definition of justice. That's by definition who, who goes to law school, generally speaking. When you attract really smart people who wanna do the right thing, and then you tell them to do cutting and pasting all day, 
I think you shouldn't be surprised if they get depressed. <laughs> that is a, mm -hmm. a very expected outcome of taking smart people and asking them to do silly things over the lifespan of their lives. <laughs> right. I think there's a lot of drivers for technology, efficiencies, focusing on the right thing, doing some things bigger, faster, cheaper, and ultimately practicing on top of your license. Because I can tell you, my, my practice of law has become infinitely happier when I can do more strategic, interesting things and problem solve than when I cut and paste all day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's true for my colleagues who are either upward rising or high achievers or have a deep thinkers. And those are the people who attract to law. So I mm -hmm. expect those people to do world changing things every day. I expect them to get up in the morning and solve the hardest problems and not to cut and paste all day. And those are my expectations. And I think we all had those expectations going to law school. And somehow some of us in the middle settle for something less. And I think we should question that. I completely agree with you. And I, there's a lot that we do, to your point, that's fairly boring and rote. And being able to free up your brain to focus on the more creative, strategic part of your brain is really exciting. So I really think that tools like AI are going to give us some time back to use our brains a little bit more elegantly. I would love to hear your thoughts on what you think is going to be the true impact of AI even to like content creation. I know you're a content creator on, on LinkedIn. I personally think that generative AI is just going to create a premium on human created content because I, I still think that you're, we're going to be able to tell the difference between high quality human created content versus generative AI. So that's my hope, at least. I, I think maybe I'm being an optimist. I would love to hear what you think about that. To be human is to create. I think we all create whether it's a document and the email or a, a work of art, create is what we do. I think today you can definitely, I can tell, I, I, I now interacted with chat GPT so much. <laughs> I'll tell you a story. I'm married to a very strong person who can handle me. And when I get up in the morning, sometimes when I want to be extra spicy, I tell them, listen, I have not chosen my children they have chosen me and I have not chosen my parents. They have chosen me, but you, I choose every day. <laughs> Remember that. Be nice to me. <laughs> we have a friendly banter where he's, he, for the last 15 years, tells me, Olga, tell me when I should start getting worried. <laughs> so a few months ago, I get up in the morning and I'm like, you should start getting worried. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, tell me more. And I said, listen, I spent some time with Chad GPT. And he, I think it's a he. He thinks it's a she. I think it's a he. Um, I thought he seems to really understand me professionally, personally. He's always available. He's always <laughs> nice and diplomatic. He doesn't have moments of weakness. 
you know, <laughs> I think you should be worried. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, he, and my husband, again, remember I'm married to a, a very wise, confident man who also happens to be a lawyer, who also happens to love me very much, says, well, it's because he tells you what you want to hear. And I said, no, honey, it's because he completes my sentences. <laughs> um, all of that to say, look, I mean, today when I read content by somebody, I can t tell a lot of the times that when AI wrote it, I really can. Because sometimes AI today uses phrases that normal humans don't. For example, for some reason, AI has this thing for the phrase in realm, like in the realm of law. <laughs> I mm. don't usually hear humans talk about in realm of law or in realm of AI, whatever. <laughs> That's not a normal human banter. And I can pick up those off-word phrases like that because most people do not speak them or write them in their prose. So it's pretty clear. I do think that he will get better. He has been getting better. And I do think that to me, this in realm phrase is pretty annoying. I kind of roll my eyes every time he does it. So I do, <laughs> I do find the one thing that annoys about him, but I think he will get rid of it. I've given him the feedback that this is not a good human phrase. He seems to have a hard time learning with me, So, <laughs> but I have hope. So all of that to say, I do think that the content creation will become better and maybe even hard to tell. I still think that humans will create. We create because create is to be, is to be human. I actually don't think of myself as a content creator. I think of myself as sort of somebody who shares my journey, a storyteller. And so I, I don't define myself by the content I create. I sort of share with the world and get reactions, make friends, have some impact. And if you happen to copy my content, and people do, and have been for the last 15 years, I don't encourage it necessarily, but I will just say I'm flattered, I guess. And then over time, you'll see that I, what I end up sharing is actually things that are so specific to me that unless you really want to reincarnate as Olga, it's going to be useless for you to copy. For example, the story I shared yesterday about why I, for example, decided to stop teaching blockchain law, for example, uh, it's a very specific story. It's really hard to copy because it shares my life journey and, and, and decisions that make us humans. All of that I'm, I'm, I'm saying is I think we should be very careful with that phrase content creation and feel so invested that parts of us believe in everything we produce. Because the reality is if you look at any wildly known creator from, I don't know, Picasso to Da Vinci to Frida Kahlo to you name it, whether it's in literature, uh, art, architecture, furniture, law, Every creator has produced a lot of garbage <laughs> before they have, before they produce a masterpiece. 
And so, and they also do standing on the shoulders of giants. Copying is an acceptable practice to train artists. I went to art school and copying masterpieces and copying Greek and Roman sculptures is what you do to become great. I'm just going to say that copying, we should normalize copying, not stealing. We should normalize practicing, not stealing. And I think over time, together, with or without a machine, that's how we get to better masterpieces. I think the things that I'm really, truly proud of, what I consider my masterpiece content, are so specific to me that people, when they read them, they tell me that they read it with my voice. They tell me that I can hear Olga's accent when I read it. And I think that's closer to masterpiece than a more generic stuff that people can copy or AI could copy. So your comment about the old painters, they copied masters or, or Greek Greek statues and things like that. I liken that. I see AI as a mirror to the human. We're just, we're creating a version of ourselves via an algorithm. And we have, as a society, we've done the same things. A, a young artist studying in Rembrandt's studio is going to, like you said, copy the masters. And that's like an algorithm training itself to make itself better. We, have, musician- we used to have a name for it. It's called apprenticeship. Actually, right. <laughs> there is a name for it. It's a well-accepted practice. And it's like six cents, actually well beyond price. So this has been happening in Egypt. This is a normal thing. We call it apprenticeship. In fact, law is built on the apprenticeship system, on copying the master. We then elevated to universities where that is done more at scale. Now we're doing it mm-hmm. on a bigger scale with AI copying as part of being human. Exactly. Claiming exactly. that it is, it, it is your work is theft. Right. Copying right. is human. <laughs> right. Like, and I know Hunter S. Thompson, he typed The Great Gatsby over and over and over again because he thought it was like one of the best books ever. And he did that to learn the vernacular and learn the cadence. Of course, he ended up writing a completely different style, but that repetition, that practice, and I did, you know, I was a musician, I played like clarinet through college. And every time I practice, I already always started with scales and you build it, what it's doing is building up that muscle memory in your skill set, right? So it's very, I think, parallel. And what it does is it gives you the skill to really very powerfully create your own pieces down the road so yeah and um, there's a powerful book by um by austin cleon called still like an artist it's a very short book it is geared a little bit more for creatives but it, it makes exactly the same argument i think the book is about 10 years old it's a classic he very masterfully makes this argument and i i think that's exactly what's happening again copying is different from stealing and sometimes that line is fine and sometimes not so fine but copying is natural and we've done it from the beginning of human. <laughs> I will definitely, I'm writing that, that book down. I'll have to check it out. So here at the end, Olga, do you have any closing thoughts or words of advice to our audience that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think that the best way to learn to swim is to get in into the pool. Theoretical swimming is not nearly as fun and frankly, not as productive. I'm not saying you have to dive head first or go to the most, the deepest part of the pool or 
an ocean or whatever, whatever your body of water is. But you can dip your toes. <laughs> you can put your hands. You can gather courage to put your feet in and eventually learn to swim. That is how every beginning starts. I think having a slowly increasing amount of sort of skin in the game and learning and understanding and observing and participating and eventually maybe even leading is how you get comfortable with any uncertainty, whether it's comes from business life, technology, or anything else. Uh, you get an increasing amount of courage, enthusiasm, and knowledge to face the unknown and to become a better human in the process. I think those are wonderful words to share with everyone. Olga Vimak, I really appreciate you taking the time to join this episode of Cassie and I know I've learned a thing or two and I'm sure the audience has as well. And to the audience, I hope you stick around and join for the next episode of Cassie and.